Why should I make a mystery of my own affairs? I am likely to be, in the near future, both a husband and a widower. That is, I am marrying a very sick, and perhaps a dying woman. This is Pints with Jack, Season 7, Episode 5, The Other American Lady. Letters to an American Lady, Part 3. Dear Pints with Jack listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season we're reading some of Lewis's letters, which have been brought together in several different collections. In Season 7, we'll read his correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne, found in Letters to an American Lady, as well as his Letters to Children, and his exchange of Latin letters with St. Giovanni Calabria. And in an effort to wrap up this book before the new year, we're going to be covering a (laughs) three-year period today, looking at the letters between 1956 and 1958. This episode is entitled The Other American Lady, who's referred to in the opening quotation, Joy Davidman. And so, needless to say, during today's episode, we're going to be talking a lot about love and suffering. All blessings, Andrew, David, and Matt. How goes it, chaps? Well, first, I feel like I'm just going to be sitting back and enjoying this recording (laughs) because there's so much joy, David, in this one that I feel like this is going to be a great opportunity for, even though I actually do have a bunch of stuff that I liked, um, I feel like Andrew's going to have some really great insights uh, around this because he's going to be able to know what was happening. And so, mm-hmm. um, and just a little teaser guys, Andrew has been telling us we've been working on something pretty cutting edge. I'll leave it at that, but around the whole <laughs> joy Davidman stuff, um, which is exciting, but no, I've been good. Um, it's Christmas season. I head to DC next week to visit the girlfriend. I'm stoked. Probably by the time this is released, I already have done that. And I'm just excited. I got a whole bunch of Christmas stuff planned. Literally the entire itinerary is scheduled out from Wednesday to Sunday. <laughs> Woman after my own heart. She's built a Canva itinerary <laughs> for every day. <laughs> I'm like, I love it. Let's do it. All right. So here's some premarital advice um, from somebody yes. who does premarital counseling for a living. A, it's your first Christmas with her. Don't blow it. <laughs> B, it's your first, perhaps, of very many Christmases with her. Don't What's overdo it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, this one is going to be hard to top. I think that ladder is the problem. Uh, okay. So, you know, be, be mindful of the fact that you may be creating expectations uh-huh. that you might spend the rest of your life uh, uh, fulfilling. She's going to be listening so, to this. So, Mary Margaret, don't get any expectations from this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cheers, Mary Margaret. Be gentle with him. It's his first time. Poor thing. <laughs> Well, I've been working all week on the, the the Joy Davidman timeline, the timeline of her initial meeting with C.S. Lewis, which has been largely misunderstood. And so it'll be part of my groundbreaking work uh, in the Till We Have Faces book. And this is grad school stuff. Um, but one of the things that I've done, and I'll, listeners, I'll make this available to, uh, to everybody very soon on my website. Uh, I have bought every single edition of every single Lewis biography, because part of what I'm doing is there there were mistakes about, uh, in almost every biography, on a number of details about their initial meeting. And so in order to trace where the mistakes came from, I'm trying to find out which edition of which biography introduced the mistake. For example, and I won't dwell on it, uh, they talk a lot about the initial meeting um, and lunches with a woman named Phyllis Williams, 
who is a friend of Joy's, um, but there's actually no such person. And I figured out mostly where that mistake came from and who they were talking about. So um, I'll make uh, like a, a list of biographical um, uh, sources for Lewis, and I'll make that available soon. Also, want to shout out uh, Ellen Fielding. Um, thank you for the correction. I thought Vice Garrant and Vice Regent were just a mistaken spelling, but she uh, she uh, went to the source and found um, found out that a Garrant is an administrative deputy of a king or magistrate. Um, and it's uh, Vico Garant from, from the Latin. So wonderful. Appreciate that. And always want to be corrected. Uh, Lewis said to find an opponent is almost to find a friend. And uh, let's hope we're already friends. Also, just shout out to my barber, Hector. I got the beard trimmed up. I got the hair trimmed up. We're going to do the uh, Kristen's family does a Christmas uh, concert um, every year. And so she and I will be the MCs. And now I'm looking a little bit less like uh, like St. Nicholas now. <laughs> what about you, David? You're looking a little less like uh, St. Nicholas, a little bit more like John Calvin. So I'm just going to say, what, what's your step? What's your step? Okay. Um, well, I, I, I am reformed. Uh, I know. You know, I know. We were, uh, it's the most, most re- English of the reformed churches that I belong to. <laughs> so yeah, we'll puff it out a little bit more next time. Uh, but yeah, as for me, I'm well. My mother is here, and so she's slotted in with our our family routines. And uh, getting her to play with the with the kids is uh, has been quite wonderful. Mm. Oh, lovely! That's going to be great. I mean, I know my mom talks about how distance can be tough, even seven hours with her grandkids. And so, this has got to be just such a treat to have this extended period of time with them. Mm. Yeah, Alexander was was very sweet when she was a little. Little sick, uh, probably caught something on the plane or from us. I'm not sure, uh, but he he went down to my mum's room, uh, got her water bottle, gave it to her, got her rosary, gave it to her, and then wandered out Aww. again. So the kid clearly Aww. has priorities. <laughs> he does. Wow. <laughs> now, what is everyone drinking today? Because I, I had I had a great thought. I thought, although we're recording early in the morning, I still want to drink beer. And then I remembered I had a video chat with one of our top tier patron supporters. I can't for the life remember who it was now, uh, but his so son- So remind us, please. Yes, please remind <laughs> us. If this is you, please let me know. Uh, his son uh, works for Best Day Brewing, and they have a uh, non-alcoholic Kolsch, which is what I'm having. You know, you awesome. inspired me, David. I'm doing the same. Mine's not the same beer, but I realized in the refrigerator I have some non-alcoholic ones. So it's called Fuel Your Quest Full- Feel better, blonde. Okay, I'm uh, now uh, lost in looking up. I like a darker beer. Um, <laughs> I like them brown. I like a bitter, uh, as we know. Ooh, twelve best non-alcoholic stouts, porters, and dark beers. Okay, you'll get nothing in like it, Andrew. <laughs> Name <laughs> I'm that drinking, movie. <laughs> I'm drinking some low acid coffee. I'm on my third cup today, so we're uh, jumping off of here and then he- heading out to Sarasota to uh, to help out with the concert. So. So I'm sorry that I have missed the boat on the non-alcoholic beers, but I'll see if I can't get um, get some good ones for the season when it looks like we're going to be recording in the mornings a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, cheers. 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 All right. So let's begin the letters in 1956. So the first letter comes in February. Mary had sent Jack a cutting from time. 
it, it's not clear to me what the cutting is. I'm assuming it's a book review and not his 1947 front cover piece. But it you can tell not. from the letter that the cutting includes a, the famous picture of Lewis lighting his pipe. And he said that <laughs> Warney thought it was the best picture of him. And another friend said that he was basically unrecognizable. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to track down this Time magazine. I have a 1977 Time magazine where he's mentioned. I also have the, um, the I think it's the December 1963 Time magazine where his obituary uh, appears. But I need to track that down. That, let, that, that uh, picture is by um, a person named John S. Murray. And it's the back cover of Lewis's best book, and it's also the, best, the, the, the back cover of Letters to Malcolm Chiefly on Prayer. Um, I think Laura Stanifer and I have spent some time kind of trying to track down who has the rights to that photo, and nobody seems to be claiming them, and I'm not sure. So don't know where that, that, the, where that Time magazine was from, but I'm going to see if I can track it down and buy one, and then I'll flex it for you all. <laughs> The letter did make me chuckle because he describes the article as a tissue of muddles and direct falsehoods. Uh, and this actually makes me wonder <laughs> if it was maybe a review of Surprised by Joy, uh, because he seemed to think that most people got, got that completely mm. wrong. Um, mm -hmm. But he says that they're muddles and not lies, because that presupposes a clarity of mind, which he thinks that these people don't actually have. He says, to call them liars would be as undeserved a compliment as to say that a dog was bad at arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, he, um, he did not really care for periodicals and newspapers. Um, he says somewhere, I believe, um, I don't read the newspapers. Why should, uh, if, if you catch a man lying to you once, why should you give him another opportunity? Uh, and I think he shared that with them. Um, with CS or with T.S. Eliot, who did not really care for um, he did not really care for the newspapers. Well, moving on in March, as well as recounting his recent trip to Edinburgh to speak on Sir Walter Scott, Lewis mentions that till we have faces just published. Mm. Oh my goodness! Silence from <laughs> Andrew. Okay, cool. Let's move on. The Dewey of Faces was composed in the spring of 1955, and it gets published in 56. Uh, just want to give a little bit of context for for uh, for where we are. In the beginning of 55, Lewis has moved to Cambridge to take the professorship. Things are going pretty well by now. Um, in 56, uh, there's the publication of Till We Have Faces. We also have um, in on April 23rd of 56, Lewis marrying Joy in the registry office. Um, she has moved to 10 Old High Street in Headington, which is about a mile's walk from Lewis's house. Not very far at all. And so 57, so at late in 56, as we'll find out, Joy finds out that she has cancer. Uh, Lewis thinks he's going to lose her. But she's already begun in late 56, uh, as Warney says, pressing for her rights as Lewis's wife. So there's this common misconception uh, Lewis, maybe it's even Lewis's own own misconception. He marries her in the registry office in April twenty third of nineteen fifty six in order to extend her his his British citizenship to her. Um, I think her visa had expired and she was going to have to go back. Um, so he marries her so she can stay. But he says this is just kind of a marriage of convenience and she'll keep her name and stay in her own house. Um, but over that summer and the fall. 
um, uh, the the biographies that say that he's often staying at Joy's house until 11 p.m. And the joke that they uh, that they bandy about in 1956, they say, well, um, people think that we're unmarried and we're up to all sorts of things when I come over here. But in fact, we are, are married and up to nothing at all. Um, <laughs> so evidently, they did not consummate the marriage, the registry office marriage in 56. But Lewis is visiting her every single day. And she begins to kind of say, hey, look, my reputation might suffer. Here's this bachelor you know, coming to visit a divorcee. And so she begins to press for her rights as his wife. And we'll see at the end of the year um, that that really kind of, it, Lewis starts to respond to that. In March of 1957, they get married by the bedside thinking that she's about to die. 56 is also when Lewis's best book comes out. It's a great I disappointment. I wrote The Great Divorce that late. I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. I thought I was already done. <laughs> Did I say yeah. that? Oh yeah, my so gosh. Right no. Yeah, yeah. Until we have faces okay. comes out in 56. You can be mistaken once in a while. It's true. Very often. Um, and uh, 57, the, the book's getting lots of reviews and people don't quite understand what's going on. Uh, by 58, Joy has recovered and Lewis is working on reflections on the Psalms and studies and words. And it's a veritable book factory, Warney says, uh, Lewis and Lewis Books uh, Incorporated, um, something like that. So, so that's kind of what's going on. So dragging this back to Till We Have Faces, I didn't think I was going to be the one to have to do this. Lewis says, I believe I've done what no mere male author has done before, talked through the mouth of and lived in the mind of an ugly woman for a whole book. And he comments that people are saying that there's no masculine note intrudes. He sent copies of the book, uh, the manuscripts of the book around to many women friends. And he was very, very concerned with the fact that he adopted a feminine voice. And in my work on that, when I ask audiences and, 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 and people, when I ask women about it, most women say, yeah, he sounds like a woman. There are some passages that are particularly there. So he's, and that's also, you know, he's really dealing with questions of gender. There's a, a conversation with, with uh, Dorothy Sayers around this time about masculine and feminine. So, so that's some of what he's, he's going through. And yeah, that, that book, um, far and away his best book, he says. Need I remind you? <laughs> We always appreciate it. Um, there's actually another letter later that month that you wanted to talk about, Matt. I think I appreciate it. You don't hear people talk about this too often, uh, but it's around the concept of the intemperance in work. And this is something probably in the US we need to hear a little bit more than people in Europe and other countries need to hear. But he says, remember that a belief in the virtues of doing for doing's sake is characteristically feminine, characteristically American, and characteristically modern. There can be intemperance in work just as drink. By doing what one's station and its duties does not demand, one can make oneself less fit for the duties it does demand, and so commit some injustice. I think what I liked here was there's, there's a prudence and a discernment in what's your duty, your responsibility. And it's, it's not black and white for everyone. And this probably goes back to our previous conversation a little bit too on answering letters and the, and the friendship side and how much do you say yes to people? Um, everyone's a little bit different. And so I think it's just, you know, what is your specific duty? And if you're doing someone else's duty, you are actually doing an injustice and it's not a virtue. 
And so just trying to figure out what your responsibility is, what the Lord's calling you to, um, that just comes from prayer and discernment. So I really like that. Um, we need to say no to certain things. So our yes can mean everything. Mm. I also love the final line in this letter where he says, just you give Mary a little chance as well as Martha. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's important. I mean, I know that the the role of the contemplative, the role of the contemplative, um, the role of the one sitting at Jesus's feet, but also, you know, as somebody who does some of that for a living, I also on Tuesday afternoons after morning prayer, um, I set up the I set up the altar. You know, I clear off the altar mm -hmm. and set up the altar and. And, uh, and make sure that it's ready for whatever's next. And so I think I forgot to do that this week. But somebody's got to bring the food, right? The bread that Jesus, is bre mm -hmm. that Jesus breaks. So. Well, and I'd imagine, Andrew, this is something that you have that's probably tough to discern. I mean, you're in a role where you have family, wife responsibilities, but you have pastoral responsibilities pulled in a lot of directions. Like there's, there's a, a discernment there. Um, and it can be tempting to, to, I know a couple pastors here in the Protestant community that can get pulled a little bit too much in a direction in one way. Um, and it's just like a thing of just like, what's the Lord kind of calling here? What's the, the allocation to each of these different things? Sure, sure. Well, fortunately, I've gotten some good coaching and I have a wonderful wife. Yes, so you do. <laughs> I know that my primary task is to care for my spiritual relationship with the Lord, yep. to feed that with prayer and with scripture and all the rest. Um, and then to nurture my relationship with my wife and to try to mm -hmm. make some time. And I'm not always, uh, not always as successful as I want to be, but she's also very supportive and so supportive and understanding when I'm doing, doing my duty to follow my calling, right? I spend a lot of time on Pints with Jack and I spend a lot of time at church, but she knows that that's what the Lord is calling me to do. And, and I couldn't ask for a better. Uh, helpmate and all of that. And so, so yeah, there's certainly some balance. Um, I'm in a position at the church where I'm not running everything. And so I have a little bit more ease, but also it's given me a chance to kind of learn how to balance the different, different parts of my, different parts of my life. Well, at the end of the month, there's a brief note where Jack has to clear up a number of Mary's misconceptions. Yeah, she says, in fact, you misunderstood my letter. She basically <laughs> got the wrong end of the stick on most of the points on that one. But in mm -hmm. April, Lewis then switches back and he reassures her regarding a recent incident. As is very often with these letters, we don't know details, um, but there was this incident where she decided not to speak. And Lewis affirms her in that. He says, except when speaking to one's confessor, doctor or lawyer, I suppose the rule is when in doubt, don't tell. At least I have nearly always regretted doing the opposite and never once regretted holding my tongue. Hmm. Hmm. Couldn't agree with, with more of that. <laughs> Even as a verbal processor and an extrovert, um, I was struck in the line that I found in Henry Nowen's book, um, The Way of the Heart, but actually comes from one of, the, one of the desert fathers, Abba Arsenius, who says, I've often repented of having spoken, but never of having remained silent. And so what I'm also finding too as a, as a priest is a lot of times people just want to be heard. And um, my rector doesn't take counseling appointments. He takes listening appointments. And I think that that's, uh, that's wise. You want to know a great rule? A boss taught me this in the work community, but I think it applies anywhere. If you have an emotional response and you can wait 24 hours, craft your response, don't send it, wait 24 hours, wake up the next day, 
reread it. Then whatever your decision is, roll with it. <laughs> but um, it's amazing how much it shifts after a night's sleep and reflecting on mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would also maybe write it on, um, I don't know, some site that will never go live, like, you know, uh, creedthoughts.creed.gov.blogspot.creed.gov. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I I was uh, the recipient once of an email that sat in somebody's outbox and it was their processing, uh, their disappointment with me, but it accidentally got sent. And it took me years to delete. How many uh, times do I have to apologize, Andrew? You were never meant to see that. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. You would. Uh, you don't. You don't write your thoughts on 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 creed creedthoughts.blog.gov. You know, I trust you to come to me directly. So, yeah. And if anyone would like to know what I think about Andrew, go to pintsofjack.com and search for "Will nobody rid me of this meddlesome priest?" <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I'm doing that. <laughs> That's a good, David. Well, um, there's a couple of other points in that letter. He uh, basically says that reviewers are surprised by joy or all failed basic reading comprehension. Uh, Lewis is, is lovely and sassy at times in these letters. It's, it's quite wonderful. Uh, but at the end of April, um, so it's about a month since the last letter, Lewis returns to the subject of offering, offering up sufferings. And Matt, mm. you're up. <laughs> well, this is, as I mentioned on the last episode, this is what's been sticking out to me probably the most so far in letters to American leaders. There's always something. And I was, honestly, I wasn't sure if something would stick out in the letters because it's not like letters are a cohesive subject. They just come as life goes. But this has been the most glaring thing to me in them so far. And here's what he says. One of the many reasons for wishing to be a better Christian is that if, if one were, one's prayers for others might be more effectual. Of course, <laughs> we have all been taught what to do with suffering. Offer it in Christ to God as our little, little share of Christ's suffering. But it is so, so hard to do. I suppose that if one loves a person enough, one would actually wish to share every part of his life. And I suppose the great saints thus really want to share the divine sufferings. And that is how they can actually desire pain. You know, I am actually just curious for you guys' thoughts. Do you agree with the statement your prayers are more effectual if you're a better Christian. Yeah, and I ask that because like that that's like a really powerful statement of you can kind of earn God's graces for prayers. Um, so it seems like there's a fine line there. I would agree. It's like, it makes sense actually. It fits with our worldly understanding of stuff, but it also, there's like a negative side of that. I'm like, oh, if you're better, you get more stuff responded to. If you're worse, you don't like what do you guys make of that? I would give an unqualified yes. Well, maybe a slightly qualified yes, but it is scriptural. In the epistle to James in chapter five, mm-hmm. um, he mm-hmm. says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I think yep. we also just know that from experience. If you're wanting prayer for something, you go to the people that you know are strong in faith. I think it's just a very mm-hmm. natural response. <laughs> if, you, uh, if, if you want God's ear, you go to those people who talk to him often. This seems like reason for me to try to <laughs> become a better person so my own prayers are more effectual. It's a good yes, incentive. <laughs> well, there's that also, but uh, but I think that we run the danger of thinking God won't hear me unless I'm a better person. 
Absolutely. Right? I think screw tape can make a great deal of hay out of that. And God is always rushing to listen to even our smallest whispers. Um, mm. Once I get to know, I mean, it's kind of like a conversation with a colleague, a business colleague, a work colleague who becomes a friend and then over the years becomes a dear friend. You don't have to make so much of the small talk. You begin to get better at speaking and listening to that person. And as Lewis later talks about in these letters, sometimes God wants us to, uh, it, it's the Joy Davidman letter, um, sometimes God wants to speak to us, not to hear from us, right? He's mm -hmm. not trying to give us something other than joy. He's, he's wanting to, to listen to him in prayer and to be able to know the flow of the conversation with the Almighty, um, it makes it even, it, it makes our prayers more effective, even just and spending a whole lot less time kind of blathering on at the mouth or saying those things. Um, I don't mean to, to disrespect my evangelical brothers and sisters, but oh, dear Lord, could we remove the word just from our extemporaneous <laughs> prayers? Oh, Lord, Holy Father, we just ask you, Lord, to just help us, Lord, and just, uh, just bless us and just and just and just. God is just, but not in the way that we mean it. And if I become really more effective at speaking to God and hearing from him, then I'll cut right to the chase. Um, in some ways, we see the model of, you know, of Lewis's letters to, to Mary Willis Shelburne, right? You've mistaken my whole letter, and it can be a franker discussion. Once again, I don't I think that the similar error to the evangelical saying just is to the liturgicals going through the rote prayers without even meaning it, mm -hmm. right? To go through rote prayers, but to have one's heart in it, to say 15 our fathers and to mean each one on some level, right? Um, so there's there are troubles on both sides. So please don't hear me pillorying anybody. But once you once you know somebody better, your conversations become deeper and more effective. It's that same sort of thing of picking up a conversation with a friend after you haven't seen them in years. And I hope that we all have those good friends where it's like we pick each other up at the airport and it's not how's your flight. It's let's talk about this and that and the other thing that we really love. And that intimacy, I think, le leads to more effective conversation. I think it may be more like that, I suspect. By the way, I've discovered that February 6th, 1956 was the Time magazine that, um, that published a review of Surprised by Joy. And if Mary was a subscriber, um, she probably got it in time to send it to him so that he could reply on February 8th. And yes, I've already bought a copy from eBay and it's on its way and we'll flex <laughs> it next time. And we'll see if the picture is there. I bet it is. Wow. All right. I'm going to push on then. <laughs> a letter in May refers to another one of these incidents. Uh, someone seems to be filled with extreme rage at some point. And Lewis warns about how our sorrow is so often mixed up with wounded pride, self-justification, fright. Um, but the, the key revelation in this letter is that Mary's lost her job. This was mm. probably related to that angry incident. And Lewis offers her a, a curiously reassuring comment. He's got several of these in the future. Uh, but it's that most of life is behind them. And he says that there will come a moment that will change all this. Nightmares don't last. Hmm. Well, this connects, David, to probably the second big thing that I pointed out, I think it was in our last recording. It's not only like the, the offer up to suffering, it's the hope side. I think one of them I put like suffering and hope as the title. Hmm. And his hope is he, he keeps just pointing out that 
the temporal is just that it's temporal and there's, there's something beyond this. And so I don't think a lot of us think that way. In fact, a lot of us are scared of the concept of death. <laughs> in reality, he looks at is such, he has a really saint-like disposition there. He really feels in communion with God. And he just looks at this as it's going to be a gift, like St. Paul. Um, he's excited for it. This will relieve all of this stuff. And here he's kind of pointing out, and it's not that far away. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I really have loved that theme. It's something I struggle with. It connects with our out of the silent planet as well, wisdom of death. Mm -hmm. I think Lewis lives what he writes. Wow. You know, Matt, I really agree. And I've been finding lately, you, especially Andrew. when I, well, sure. I, I think that we should do, <laughs> you know. You do some of the rarer things today. Um, <laughs> one of the things I've been thinking about in my conversations with parishioners and in talks, um, and especially because I'm in a denomination that's older and more uh, prone to death and illness and trouble and doctor's appointments and surgeries. And I said this in a talk not long ago, would we really want to evade the way of pain and suffering and death and not follow our Lord down that path that was so effective for us? By his stripes, we are healed. And who am I to think that I should avoid that pain? That seems to be a very American advertising idea um, that I should always be young and pretty and never hurt. Um, and uh, I'm was not young for very long, never very pretty, and you know, and pains are, are what come. But our Lord went that way, and to suffer is to be treated with His sufferings. You know, Saint Paul talks about, "I want to, you know, not only live for Him but suffer for Him." You know, and why would I not go the way that He has trod? Um, even unto the cross and to the death, because all of the suffering and the death lead to redemption and resurrection. In June, we discover that some of Mary's friends are helping her out during, during her troubles, um, but it seems that this is making her feel uncomfortable. And Lewis is wonderful here. He just sets us straight. We are all members of one another and must all learn to receive as well as to give. Isn't the spiritual mm -hmm. value of having to accept money just like this that it makes palpable the total dependence in which we always live anyway. Well, and I want to, he, he goes a, a step further with this that I think is one of the more profound statements. And maybe this comes from someone's going to send an email because they behave when I bring this up, but um, a type three Enneagram <laughs> here where you place your self-worth and success. Uh, and so it's very easy to make uh, worthiness and money uh, tied together. And so here's what he says. This is just remarkable. If it were true, really true, that to receive money or money's worth degraded the recipient, then every act of alms we have done in our lives would be wicked. Hmm. It just shows to goes to show. It's another way of flipping on its head and one of the most brilliant things that worth and money don't go hand in hand. We don't truly believe that. Like sometimes we can internalize it, but if, the, if we actually believe that, let's say I believe this, and then I go and I give someone else money, to some degree, it's like a, a wicked act because I'm degrading them because I'm saying, well, they can't do it on their own. Um, and it's not, that's not what we believe. It's a, it's a beautiful, mm. his, his first statement is the more true statement there. We're all one body and we help each other. And certain times it goes one way, certain times it goes the other way. This is just remarkable. I love this. Well, you know, he's quoting Romans 12. Um, this is mm -hmm. what Romans 12, 3 through 5 says. 
By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many, many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so though many... So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The NIV, I think, says we belong to one another. But I love the warning in verse 3 where St. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And I think that's the danger in all, of, all kinds of generosity, both being the giver and the receiver. Let me not yes. be proud that I can give. Let me not too, be too proud to receive, Right. The fact that I work a job and get money, and if I don't have money and I need the money from somewhere else, from someone else, well, even the fact that I could work and that I had the job was a gift of God. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the, the donation of money you know, from, from people's charities is a more naked description of the thing that's going on altogether. The danger is to think, oh, I was so good that I got this job that I was able to make this money. But even those things are gifts from God, and in some ways, God just kind of handing us. We're all sixpence none the richer, aren't we? Indeed. And this theme of receiving charity continues for a few letters. And actually, in the next one, Lewis explains that if receiving charity really was degrading, then the rich man was quite right to leave Lazarus lying at his gate. <laughs> hmm. He just points out the absurdity of stuff so well. <laughs> mm. And and once again, you know, when people ask me why Lewis is such an effective psychological writer, you know, why is screw tape so effective? I think it's because of the piece of furniture that was in his room. It was his mirror. Mm. And I think that he knew his own heart so well. And that's why I think he can describe it in others. And just before we leave this letter, there was one bit of advice that I really liked. It was how to endure unhappy times. He says, bit by bit, hour by hour, it is seldom the present, the exact present, that is unbearable. And mm -hmm. I think we'll discuss this a little bit more in a future letter where he unpacks this further. Um, but there was also right at the end of this letter, he promises to pray for her when he wakes at night. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a delightful sentiment that I recognize, but I actually find it kind of hard to articulate why. Mm. I think perhaps it's something to do with the fact that when you wake in the middle of the night, the world is asleep and it's really just you and God. And remembering somebody in that moment is more intimate and special, I suppose. Absolutely. And I think that one can be deliberate about making those kinds of prayers. Lord, when I when I wake in the night, would you bring to mind those people and situations you want me to pray for? Um, mm -hmm. If one is of the mind to worry when one wakes in the night, that's another good thing to um, cast another good opportunity to cast our cares on the Lord. You certainly can't do anything about it at 3 a.m. usually. Um, oftentimes, if I'm going to preach on Sunday, I'll um, read the passage a week or two in advance. And when I wake in the night, I'll think on the passages. And sometimes the Lord will, you know, kind of work things out in my sleep. And so um, rather than being annoyed at being wakeful in the night, um, receive it as a gift and receive it as not only as a gift for myself, but also a time where I can be intimate with the Lord and a, and a gift for others. Lord, instead of getting pissy about not being able to sleep well, please let me carry somebody else's burdens. Um, one thinks of Charles Williams in such situations. Hmm. 
An interesting use of word, considering it's quite common for men of older ages to wake up often during the night for that very reason. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, there are two letters in August, and in the first one, Lewis notes that Mary's social engagements seem to be more of a source of affliction than pleasure. And Lewis sympathizes, and I can't wait until we get to Surprised by Joy, where we have a passage where he's railing against somebody inviting him to a party. Uh, but in <laughs> this particular case, it seems to be more like somebody said something hurtful to her in one of these social situations. And Jack reminds her that 99% of the time, hurtful things are often said unintentionally. And he mm -hmm. says that he is saying this as someone who often unknowingly says hurtful things. And ironically, he says, when he tries to say hurtful things, the mean insults inevitably fail. Mm. <laughs> well, and that's a grace too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He's got a couple of comments about uh, Hindus and Hinduism, about the relationship with the body and the sacraments and the resurrection of the body. Um, I would like to see somebody really do a deep dive in Lewis's view of particularly Eastern religions. I think that'd be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also like the, what he says about Pythagoras and Plato and Marcus Aurelius. He calls them poor dears. They don't know about the sacraments nor the resurrection of the body. <laughs> mm. Well, he also has in here a commentary in, I don't remember what book it's in um, that we've read before. Screw but it's a, <laughs> There we go. <laughs> the concept of the present versus the future and the idea that <laughs> The Lord gives us everything we need for the present and promises that uh, to handle it. But he doesn't promise us the ability to handle the hundred things that we think are going to come in the future and 99 of them are never going to come anyways. Uh, and so probably no point in reading that. Uh, it's pretty much what he says, but that's, I, I really like that part in here. I thought it was beautiful. Um, and he actually says here, I am sure God never teaches us the fear of anything but himself. Mm, I think that's a key that. line there. Yeah. Uh, in the notes there in front of us, Matt, we have letter six and letter 15 from the screw tape letters. Um, <laughs> Clearly, I don't read ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I just so, added it in the last moment. Go ahead, David. Yeah, my letter six one was where screw tape says, We want him to be in the maximum uncertainty so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. Hmm. And mine says, God would have us be continually concerned either with eternity, which means concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on himself or obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, amen, giving thanks for the present pleasure. And I love that um, uh, in Lewis. So... By the way, there's a, an ellipse uh, where in the previous letter, and I just want to toss the, the this in. What he omitted was, you know, again more personal family situations for Mary Willis. But he uh, he makes this statement: How horrid it all is! These troubles that you're going through. We have no resources but our prayers, and so that may be a connection between, you know, yes, the present burden needs to be met with our present prayers too. Mm. And he also repeats the advice, which appears in a variety of forms over the course of these letters. In this one, he says, poverty and every other ill, lovingly accepted, has all the spiritual value of a voluntary poverty or penance. <sighs> Man, this guy is so good. Let the reader understand. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Well, the sending address of the second August letter is just wonderful. It reads somewhere in Ireland, <laughs> uh, from part unknown. Um, the good news in this letter is that Mary now has a new job, but the bad news is that it seems that Fanda, Mary's cat, was sick and had to be put down. And Lewis offers his sympathy, saying that he never laughs at someone grieving a lost animal. And Matt, you had a connection to the four loves here. Yeah, I love just kind of seeing him work all of these different themes that we have come across and different things into here. And he says, I think God wants us to love him more, not to love creatures less. So if you guys remember, mm -hmm. you can't love anything on earth too much. You can only love it too much in relation to love for God. And so rather than mm -hmm. focusing on getting your love for people or for animals uh, or creation in check, just focus on increasing your love for God, um, making mm -hmm. that the number one. All the rest will be fall into place. He's not stingy about love. Why should we be? <laughs> yes. And skipping ahead to one letter in September, I I'm interested to know whether or not you guys agree with this statement. He says, problem. Why are nuns nicer than monks and schoolgirls nicer than schoolboys when women are not in general nicer than men? But perhaps you deny all three statements. <laughs> I, just want, I just want a quick quick reaction from you two. Yes. What do you reckon? Are nuns nicer than monks? Yes or no? To the whole question, I would like to give a hearty, hearty answer of no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Okay, so Andrew is being smart and avoiding the question. Matt, are nuns nicer than monks? The stereotypes in the Catholic community... <laughs> This is going to get me in so trouble. Uh, this is why I asked it. Which is why I'm smarter than Matt. <laughs> uh, the, the old like 60s, 70s teacher nuns, a stereotype is slapping mm -hmm. the ruler on the table. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there's like a disciplinarian act. Yeah. <laughs> Except my interaction with the Sisters of Charity when I was in Mother Teresa's was absolutely the most beautiful, delightful individuals. Well, in the world. I mean, that's so, the obvious exception. Why are nuns nicer than monks, with the exception of you know canonized saints and the and the order that she founded? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> all right, all right. I, I, I won't. I won't push it. I just saw this and thought, I don't think I disagree with any of that. Yeah, no. <laughs> this norm. This next sentence is terrible too. When women are not in general nicer than men. And that I disagree with. I think if we'd have to define what we mean by niceness, but I would say in general, yeah. women are more willing to be genial. They put a little bit more effort in, whereas guys, it's generally, what do you want? <laughs> like, cut, cut through the niceties. So he's saying they're not as nice, and you're saying they're nicer. Yeah, I think he's just saying that yeah, I agree. As, as sexist, women aren't, aren't, you know, it's not generally known that women are generally nicer than men. That's his assertion. But yet- yes. He says that nuns are nicer than monks and schoolgirls are nicer than schoolboys. And I would say that one maybe, but anyone that's hung around, uh, you know, or remembers the schoolgirls uh, from from their youth, they can also be particularly nasty when they want to be. But I, it, it was just, just a, a very interesting statement. And I think it probably speaks a little bit more to Lewis's background and exposure to women uh, than anything else. Yes. Well, let's step aside from that landmine. Uh, <laughs> In the next few letters, Mary seems to be struggling with health and finances, as usual, and Jack is actually doing no better. And on the uh, on the uh, 20th of October, he writes, your letter comes to me on a day when I am all embroiled with affairs arising out of a friend's sudden illness. 
and very mm-hmm. much distressed. Mm-hmm. Who's the friend, Andrew? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is our first mention, we believe, of Joy Davidman. Um, mm-hmm. And so Joy and Lewis were friends. They started corresponding in 49. Um, they met in person in 52. She moves to England in 53. I think by 1955, he and I need to find that out and that'll go on my timeline. By 55, he's renting her a place uh, a mile away, as we've discussed, uh, 10 Old High Street in Headington. It's even got a little plaque about Joy Davidman there. Um, and at one point, he somebody calls her on the phone, and she goes to answer the phone, and her leg snaps because it's, she's got cancer. Um, they portray that very well in Shadowlands. And so it looks like she's riddled with cancer, and she's probably about to die. Um, and uh, this is in 1956, after they have been married um, in the registry office for a few months. And so that's, that's kind of what's going on there. Hmm. Yeah, this one honestly broke my heart from the letter in November 16th, 1956. I may soon be in rapid succession, a bridegroom and a widower. There may in fact be a deathbed marriage. I can hardly describe to you the state of mind I live in at present, except that all emotion with me is periodically drowned in sheer tiredness, deep lakes of stupor. Perhaps a very heavy cold in the head helps us. I mean, you can just kind of, you can hear the weight of emotion that he's feeling here. And you just don't mm-hmm. get a lot of that of Lewis in different areas of his life. I mean, you you see him sometimes talk about, I don't know if it was in a grief observer or I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was Douglas Gresham, my conversation with him, how Lewis tried very hard not to burden people with his emotions. Um, mm-hmm. And... Yeah, here you can just kind of, so we don't get a lot of it written out. Obviously, Grief Observed probably is a heavy dose of it, but um, I've never read that. Uh, so anyways, this was this was tough. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, summer of 55, she hired a house in Headington at number 10 Old High Street, says Warney's Diary. Um, and he says something in 56 um, about her too. But yeah, you carry on, David. Well, I was just going to then move through to January. We're now in 1957. I know we spent most of our time uh, this episode on 56. The the, the next two years are, um, are not quite so voluminous in terms of letters. Yeah, sorry. Let me do jump in. I just found it. Um, in November of 56, Warney records in his diary um, uh, that there were only four years in between Minto Minto's death and Joy and the and Joy's arrival. He calls it the Ancien Regime and the Restoration. Jack assured me that Joy would continue to occupy her house as Mrs. Gresham, and that the marriage was a pure formality designed to give Joy the right to go on living in England. And I saw the uselessness of disabusing him. <laughs> so Warney saw right through that, even if if uh, if Joy didn't. Um, and when she, um, she, so she, she says, uh, he records that um, she's concerned for her reputation in the summer of 56 with Jack coming every day. Um, and Lewis bows to that. And all arrangements had been made for the installation of the family at the kilns when disaster overtook us. And so in the fall or so, 
Um, summer and fall of 56, after the registry marriage, Lewis and Joy are spending time together every day. She's pressing him and he has agreed for her to come and live at the kilns. And that's before the cancer rather than after. So that's an important note from Horney. So their their relationship is certainly growing. And we see that here uh, at this point. Sorry. No, worries. no you're good. Uh, we were at the start of 1957. So Joy is very ill. And Lewis has a lovely line in his letter. He says, I must try to not let my own present unhappiness harden my heart against the woes of others. You too are going through a dreadful time. He gives one of his uh, reassuring comments. Ah, well, it will not last forever. There will come a day for Mm -hmm. all of us when it is finished. Mm -hmm. I think what I loved about this was one, it, it was just another confirmation of the hardness that he's feeling. But I love that his disposition is, I can't let this, because there's a temptation when we're suffering and struggling to turn within and to no longer have any capacity to pour into another person. And it's okay that we have that temptation. That's a natural human temptation, but we got to fight it um, to the best of our abilities. And so I love that he can still hold her in her struggle. And then like you Mm -hmm. pointed out, David, he can still point out the hope. And I like that he's consistent with himself. He's not now wallowing in it and like, well, I can keep sending this to all these other people, but for myself, it's like, well, this is so much of a struggle that just focusing on this will pass as a a trite platitude. It's like, it's not. He means it and he's telling himself the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and it also made me think as I'm about to turn 58 that most of the troubles, you know, majority of my life is behind me. And most of the troubles that I have endured in my life, um, have probably already happened, although the end will probably come with failing health and all the rest. But um, I'd, I'd never had that perspective, and I'd never been this old, obviously, when I read these letters this time. Um, and you so also never again, be this uh, young again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or what does the comedian? Uh, what does the comedian say? Um, hey, this is a picture of me when I was younger. Every picture of me is a picture <laughs> of me when I was younger. Mitch Hedberg, ladies and gentlemen. Another letter comes uh, a week or so after that one, and Lewis explains that his rheumatism is really kicking up, and it means that he can hardly write. But he does explain that he married Joy to Mary. He says, I think she will weather it this time, after that life under the sword of Damocles. Very little chance, not exactly none, of a permanent escape. I acquire two schoolboy stepsons. My brother and I have been coping with them on their Christmas holidays. Nice boys, but grueling work for two old bachelors. I am dead tired now. Hmm. He didn't have to deal with them when they were toddlers. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then his comment, um, his comment on uh, uh, in middle of January that I have married a woman, even though the the um, bedside marriage by Father Peter By the religious marriage doesn't take place for another couple of months. He already considers him married. So the uh, fiction that he had. Yeah in April that we were just going to be married just to extend the citizenship. I I don't think anybody believed that all that much. Maybe Lewis did a little bit, uh, but he gets disabused of that um, fairly quickly. <laughs> and in the next letter, Lewis responds to many of the questions that Mary seems to have had about this marriage out of nowhere. Uh, and in a line that echoes the four loves, he says, no one can mark the exact moment at which friendship becomes love. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably particularly true for Lewis. This supports you, Andrew. Oh, absolutely. Um, In The Four Loves, uh, Lewis says that um, 
and I'm going to quote it imperfectly, that, uh, that friendship can often uh, turn lead to romance is almost guaranteed to do so if the two, um, if the two parties are not otherwise, in, otherwise loved and if they don't find each other repulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, that friendship of the opposite sex is very, very often likely to turn to love. And I think that in 1960, the year that, that Joy dies, um, as he's writing for loves, so I think he's very much thinking about what goes on in his relationship with Joy. It's also what happens between Orwell and Bardia. Bardia befriends her. And when he says, oh, I wish that you were a man, he means I wish that we could be better friends. And he doesn't know that Orwell is in love with him. And so she f- says, it feels like a, a, you know, cold water dashed all over me. Um, but Bardia is just loving her as a friend. And I think that you see in Bardia and Orwell, um, a picture of Jack and Joy. Um, uh, they were friends and, and uh, Lewis and Bardia acknowledged that. Um, they didn't know that, or- that, that their friend was also in love with them. And uh, of course, Bardia died before uh, before he was aware, but that didn't that wasn't Joy and Jack's fate. He notes in this letter that Warney is currently ill. I'm not sure if that is mm-hmm. sickness or maybe his drinking binges. Um, mm-hmm. But the the bright spot in this letter is that Mary seems to have received some money at the last minute to cover her rent, and Jack has this lovely line: "Clearly, he who feeds the sparrows has you in his care." Mm-hmm. And he once again ends with one of his comments about us all being dead soon anyway. He says, ah, well, we <laughs> shall all be out of it in co- comparatively few years. And yeah, that seems a little fatalist, but also remember our Lord saying, and I, you know, this is part of my, part of my own pastoral awareness in the last six months or a year. In this world, you will have troubles, but take heart for I have overcome the world. I was just watching a stupid show about special forces and these people who had endured all of this terrible training and and even torture, um, these celebrities. And at the end of it, when they get through, they're all happy. And I, and I thought, oh, I wonder what it would have been like if they could have taken some of that future happiness and applied it to the struggles of their day. And that too, I think, is part of the hope of heaven for us. You know, we will be gloriously delivered from all pain and all sadness, and every tear will be wiped away. Let us see if we can't grab some of that eternal joy and lavish it a little bit on our days, um, especially on those days when we're most mindful of our sufferings. Our sufferings, you know, our sufferings are a light and momentary affliction, and the weight of glory that awaits us is so great. And so when you uh, have a long waiting and a happy issue at the end, see if you can borrow some of that joy at the end and put it into today. Even as, a, as children, when we anticipated Christmas and we were so eager for it and so waiting for it and the pain of the waiting, let's grab some of the joy of Christmas and apply it to the patience that we need for the suffering of today. Mm. Well, speaking of suffering, in April, Lewis writes, my wife is now home, bedridden, and dying. I lead the life of a hospital orderly and have hardly time to say my prayers or eat my meals. But in June, he writes that joy appears well. Warney is back to normal. Um, and if anyone that's really suffering is Jack, because his back is starting to spasm. Uh, and in the following letter, he actually then finally identifies his wife as the author of Smoke on the Mountain uh, and saying that she's in no pain and in wonderful apparent health and spirits. 
Look at his verb. My wife was Joy Davidman. Mm. She's now Joy Lewis. Mm. Yes. And there's nothing discreditable in dying. I've known the most respectable people do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a very Oscar Wilde sort of line, I think. Yes, yes. And the letter following that, we find out that Jack showed Mary's recent letter to Joy, and she now sends her love. And they both include their autographs in the letter. And Mm -hmm. Joy seems to continue to heal, um, but Jack is now struggling with his osteoporosis. He says, I'm wearing a surgical belt, very like one's grandmother's corsets. It gives me a wonderfully youthful figure. (laughs) Don't want to know how he would know that information. (laughs) About his grandmother's corsets? (laughs) No, me neither. Next letter um, in October. Matt, you had some notes on this one. Yeah, it's just he gives such good spiritual advice. And Mm -hmm. here's what he says. I'll just read it short. God is already giving you new spiritual strength with which to meet this trouble, terrible affliction. But pain is pain. The great thing is you obviously seen is to live from day to day an hour to hour, not adding the present or future, the past or future to the present. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's a combination of a number of his things. He keeps repeating these themes, but here it's like, God gives you the strength to the present and that's mm-hmm. it. That's what's promised. But I also love, there's a subtle thing in here. Even though it gives you the strength, you're still allowed to recognize I'm in pain. Pain is pain. Mm-hmm. Like he's still, sure. he's he's got a human, he combines the deep spiritual truth with humanity still. Not like, yep. all right, come on, offer up your suffering. He gives you the strength. Stop complaining about your pain. Like he still yeah. leaves in, but it's okay to be human, I guess. <laughs> well, I was just talking to a Lewis friend this week who's um, undergoing some real trouble at work and mm. reminded them, as I've had to remind myself so many times, that God will not give me Thursday's grace on Monday. Um, he'll wait till Thursday in order to give me the grace sufficient unto the day. Daily um, bread. Absolutely. Um, and I love how he also uses in that discussion in this letter uh, a war metaphor, which is you know very common in his writings. As one lived in the front line, they're not shelling us at the moment, and it's not raining, and the rations have come up, so let's enjoy ourselves. And he concludes, it'll be nice when we all wake up from this life, which has indeed something like nightmare about it. And we then wrap up 1957 with a letter in November. And Mary seems to be moving. And Lewis makes a comment about furniture, which we find echoed in The Four Loves, uh, about it looking kind of shabby out of place. And Jack says that his osteoporosis means that he's never going to be able to do real walks ever again. But mm. he's very grateful that the desire to take these long walks mercifully dissipates along with his actual ability to take them. Mm-hmm. And then we turn the corner into the final year that we're going to be looking at today, and that's 1958. The talk about not walking again made me very sad until I realized that he actually was able to recover and they did uh, a fair mm. bit of walking. And so it wasn't even as bleak as he thought it was. But yes, yeah, so let's do carry on. Mm. And so then we turn the corner into 1958, and we read in the first letter in January that Joy came to work with Jack, and he describes it as, uh, it sounds like a small thing, but it would have been incredible even a month ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she came with him in a car to Cambridge and then went back after lunch, and 
he, he really appreciated that and, uh, you know, sucked the marrow out of that experience. Yes. We also hear that one of the kiln's dogs had a surprise litter of puppies, and they've been trying to get rid of them with, to the neighbors. Uh, but they ended up keeping one and calling it Guppy after a character from Bleak House. <laughs> Guppy the puppy. <laughs> There's a great line in that letter, too, that God has been wonderfully good to us in every way. He then has some comments about socialized medicine and about the, the National Health Service because Mary is mm -hmm. struggling with her health and paying for medicine. And there's the letter in February, it's, it's, it's a very funny opening. Joy, who thanks you for your most kind message, tells me I am writing to you on George Washington's birthday. So there's glory for you, as Humpty Dumpty would say. <laughs> <laughs> and he repeats that God is being very good um, to us. We have the first mention of his cat, Tom, who uh, I've told the story of Tom the pensioner before. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first mention of the ginger cat, Tom. And this is an another piece of advice that we've seen come up again and again when he says, we must not fret about not doing God those supposed services, which he in fact does not allow us to do. And we've mentioned mm. when you're, when you're too sick to go to church, it's like, well, may maybe, maybe there's a reason, reason for that. Um, but he, he does close out by mentioning that he's written uh, one of the Silent Planet related essays, Shall We Lose God in Outer Space? Then we jump to March. And so in earlier letters, Mary was suffering from toothache and it now seems that it's switched to earache. I swear these two people are like some of the sickest people <laughs> in, in the yes. world at the time. It's just, it's like new diseases, every letter. Um, but uh, he, he does speak about periods of dryness in prayer. And this made me think mm -hmm. of uh, screw tape, uh, the law of undulation. Uh, but Lewis says, do our prayers sometimes go wrong because we insist on trying to talk to God when he wants to talk to us? Yeah, that's what I did mm. earlier. Yeah. Well, I love what he adds here. He brings in St. Augustine. This is just so beautiful. So beautiful. St. Augustine says, God gives where he finds empty hands. I probably would have mm. chose this for quote of the week. Um, mm. A man whose hands are full of parcels can't receive a gift. Perhaps these parcels are not always sins or earthly cares, but sometimes our own fussy attempts to worship him in our way. I just want to make a, a small comment. Like this is this is what makes the great divorce so beautiful, is how he chooses a whole bunch of stuff that we wouldn't have thought would keep us from hell <laughs> or heaven, I mean. Mm -hmm. um, things that we could very much relate to, I think. This is similar. Mm -hmm. Of course, all of us can agree, oh yeah, sins and all these earthly cares prevent us from having receiving what God wants to give to us. But not many people would point out our own conception of what God wants from us can do that. And this this connects mm -hmm. very much to Father Walter Chizek and he leadeth me. That was a huge problem he had when he went to Soviet Russia uh, during World War II. He thought God had a certain plan for him and his mission and his journey. And it was completely different. It caused depression mm -hmm. and anxiety and all of this suffering until he realized it's only causing this because it's his idea of God's will for him rather than him mm -hmm. receiving in the moment God's actual will for mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. So I just think this is so beautiful. Well, and that problem which begins in the great divorce is finally fulfilled until we have faces because the gods are actually not demanding of Orwall, but the gods are loving Orwall. Hey, it's just true. I'm just pointing out the truth. <laughs> but, but the god Ungat and her son wanted to love Orwall and she was so tight-fisted 
um, she couldn't receive. There's this marvelous passage too in Mark 11. It's the only one of the gospels that records during the overturning of the tables in the temple, the cleansing of the temple. Um, only Mark records that Jesus wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. And what were they carrying? They were carrying their sacrifices to God. But what Jesus was implicitly saying, I think, is that um, that the sacrifice and offering I have not required, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite spirit, O Lord, you will not despise. What God wants from us is not what we can give to him, but our empty hands, as Jesus pointed out in the temple by letting nobody carry anything, our openness to receive all that God has to give from us. And I think that there's very much, there it is. <laughs> wow, David's mm. uh, David's pulling up one of the memes from Reading Day. That's you must a have good a capacity one. to receive, or even om- or even omnipotence can't give. And it's wow. a, a meme, a graphic of open hands. David, here, here. That is one of my favorites. I think yeah. what's so profound about that statement there is most people wouldn't think naturally. Oh, omnipotence, God Himself. We can't stop something. But in this case, we absolutely can because of free will. I mean, if we are not mm-hmm. open to receiving it, he can't force it into our hands. The dwarfs would not be taken in, as, as you do not yet know, Matt. But um, <laughs> And Orwal also would not be taken in. She couldn't see Psyche's palace because she had blinded herself by refusing an invitation to love and to, and to joy and to getting over herself. So, yeah. I can so see, as we read these letters, why... I why this book, as my first adult Lewis book, um, made me such a devotee of Lewis. There's so much, as you pointed out, Matt, so much practical help here. And I can only yeah. imagine 30 years ago um, how much that was like water on a, on a des- desert soul. I'm excited for this letter. Oh, the next one. Yeah, this is one from the 15th of April. 1958, and Lewis speaks about how it took many years of being a Christian before his theoretical belief in forgiveness of sins became a reality. And there are many, many Lewis quotations about that idea. Um, In this letter, we also find out that Jack and Joy have just got back from a belated honeymoon. And he says, I'm such a confirmed old bachelor that I couldn't help feeling I was rather naughty, staying with a woman (laughs) at a hotel, just like people in the newspapers. Uh, There's still even a better part. (laughs) Well, um, uh, you can do that bit. I just wanted to also note that he says that the vicar's going to come around to give Joy communion for Easter, since although they managed to get away on a honeymoon, getting to church each Sunday isn't really on the cards for her. Mm, that's beautiful that they do that i think it's around this time in another letter he talks about finally forgiving um oldie right Mm -hmm. from from uh his first headmaster he said i think i've finally done something that i've been trying for 30 years to do really forgive my horrid old schoolmaster and Mm -hmm. so if you haven't if you still resent people of friends um if you haven't completely forgiven and 70 times seven doesn't even seem enough, you're in good company. It takes a while really to forgive. And that's part of like practicing your prayers. We should practice forgiveness um, because that is certainly is a spiritual muscle that needs some development. All right, Matt. Share, Chesh, share the I funny bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love this PS. I feel like it shows, one, it does show an awareness uh, of his situation or what his situation was. And two, there's just like a little bit of, 
he probably doesn't mean it this way knowing Lewis, but it's like, I don't know how to explain it. There's a little bit of cockiness. No, not, not the right word, but anyways, he goes, PS, by the way, you are one of the minority of my numerous female correspondents who didn't gradually fade away as soon as they heard I was married. So this just made me chuckle because he recognizes that probably a lot of them were pursuing him, uh, in some kind of subtle fashion and hoping <laughs> that it would turn into more. And I love that one of them was successful. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it had to be an American. Hey, Lewis lady. got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lewis got ghosted on the dating sites. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, you entitled that previous letter, Women Fade Away. I titled the next section as A Woman Who Definitely Didn't Fade Away. Because in the next letter, we have an interloper. Joy jumps into the conversation. She's taking over for Jack today because he's drowning in examination papers. And uh, she even says that he's actually not going to be back from Cambridge for two weeks. And so after commiserating with Mary about her various medical issues, obviously Joy could relate. Uh, She speaks about the importance of needing to receive the help from others. So I'm sure that she and Lewis spoke about this a lot in reference to Mary and uh, Joy is wanting to reiterate. Uh, and, And she offers a new piece of advice. She talks about working off one's frustrations by knitting. Hmm. Also, as a practical note, I looked up um, Joy's letter in Collected Letters, and her ellipses, her dot, dot, dots, um, are not omissions from the editor. She's actually using ellipses. So those dot, dot, dots were Joy's, whereas the ones in Jack's letters um, point to um, to omissions about Lewis mentioning some personal issues um, for Mary Willis. In the next letter, Jack is back. Uh, he's wrestled control of the correspondence from his wife. Uh, And he talks about the importance of distinguishing between feelings and conscience. He writes, Mm -hmm. if there is a particular sin on your conscience, repent and confess it. If there isn't, tell the despondent devil not to be silly. What the devil loves is that vague cloud of unspecified guilt feeling or unspecified virtue by which he lures us into despair or presumption. Details, please, is the answer. And I think that this is worth unpacking a little bit unspecified guilt feeling or unspecified virtue um, that leads us into presumption. And so if I'm fe- I think that we should treat guilt and fear the same way. And Lewis, I think, is helpful here. I think that when I feel guilty, vaguely guilty or vaguely afraid, I should really stop and say, what do I fear? And is that fear valid? And can I do anything about it and dispatch it with prayer? right? Or effective action. The same thing with guilt. The only thing, the only thing to do with guilt is to repent of the action and make amends where possible. And then remember that even the guilt that I have been carried has already been carried by Jesus on the cross. By our stripes, we are healed. And so I think that a lot of people feel vaguely guilty about things when what we should actually do is just pray, give it to God, and then rebuke the devil, right? Resist the devil and he'll flee from us. In the same way, if I think I'm being particularly virtuous and I'm starting to get that vague sense of pride, maybe look and ask myself, how virtuous was I really? And could I not strengthen that virtue? Could I not have done that a little bit better? How might I go about? And that's why they call it the practice of Christianity, because our dealings both with our vague guilt and our vague 
conceit. Um, with practice, we can kind of get at it. It's almost like at a workout working on a particular muscle. Um, and so, so too here, I would not, I would not skip over that in when we're feeling vaguely guilty. <laughs> uh, in the next letter, we find out that reflections on the Psalms has come out and Lewis has had to go to the dentist, one of his favorite metaphors used again and again. And he writes about it here. We must both, I'm afraid, recognize that as we grow older, we become like old cars. More and more repairs and replacements are necessary. We must just look forward to the fine new machines, latest resurrection model, which are waiting for us, we hope, in the divine garage. Mm. Mm. Dude, I love yes. that. Lewis hates the dentist. I schedule three to four visits a year. I love to get my teeth cleaned. I love the dentist. I don't do that whole six month. I do the three to four month. Um, I just love leaving and you got all the stains gone. You got your teeth polished and clean. You just kind of walk out. You feel good. I just went last week. So I'm also kind of just. Man, you're going to love purgatory, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like the, the feeling of cleansingness is always, whether it's when you run a marathon and you finish and you're crossing the finish line, it's one of the greatest feelings. You did pain and suffering to like make yourself stronger. Let me suggest that they probably have uh, less painful and more humane uh, ways yes. of cleaning your teeth than, than <laughs> yeah. 70 years ago. Um, I agree. Let me also mention about the car. Um, this wonderful quote from the end of Mere Christianity. If you are a poor creature poisoned by a wretched upbringing and some in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friend, friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. So there's that wonderful car metaphor about the way that we live our own lives. And thanks be to God for that. That's also raw material. That's mere Christianity, raw material. Mm. And I think that's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. There's a comment in a, in, a, in a later letter when he says, as for wrinkles, pshaw, why shouldn't we have wrinkles? Honorable insignia of long service in this warfare. <laughs> I think that Joy probably didn't uh, didn't vet that letter. Easier for a man to say than a woman. Uh, one one thing in that uh, September letter, uh, we get to hear about Lewis's favorite time of day, and as someone mm -hmm. who is enjoys early mornings, they get taken away from me with a toddler, so I'm some some somebody's butler instead at that time of the morning. Uh, but I still recognize what he says here. He says, I'm a barbarously early riser and usually have got my breakfast and dealt with my letters before the rest of the house is astir. One result is that I often enjoy the only fine hours of the day. At this time of year, lovely, still, cool sunshine from seven till 10, followed by rain from then on is common. And here's the line. I love the empty, silent, dewy, cobwebby hours. Yes, I love that. Uh, I don't like those early hours, but I love the I love the <laughs> phrase. Um, yeah, and I also noticed how he was very fastidious about saying uh, Joy would send her love, but she's still asleep. Right? <laughs> he doesn't presume that she's sending is sends sends her love, and so when he says that Joy does send her love, she's probably in the room. 
Yeah, or he's maybe throwing her under the bus. He's like, I can't believe she's still asleep in bed. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was probably more generous with her. Yeah, probably. Um, well, we've just got <laughs> two more letters to finish off the year and this episode. In December, Jack apologizes for falling behind on his correspondence a bit. And he's working on studies in words. One of his books I haven't even mm -hmm. opened yet. So, oh my gosh. So at some point in the future. No, you don't need to take no, no, put it away, Andrew. Andrew, put it back. Put it back. <laughs> <laughs> Restrain yourself, Andrew. Restrain yourself. Delay this is gratification. just from the for sale shelf. This is not from my first edition shelf. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the big news in December is that Lewis is now finally able to send Mary some money. If you recall, there have been legal reasons that you weren't allowed to send money from England to the United States, but Barfield now seems to be seeing to it. So his friend Owen Barfield, who was also his solicitor, um, it's not entirely clear to me as to what has changed, what law has changed, or whether Barfield's just found a better way of funneling the money through. But either way, he can now support her, which is something that he's been saying that he's wanting to do, he's wanted to do for a long time. I'll say this under correction, but I believe what happened um, was that Lewis is able to disperse money from his American publishing, uh, so from the the book companies or whatever, and mm -hmm. so they would take it out of his royalties and send it to her from, say, Macmillan or Harcourt or something. So I think that's what happened. Excellent. Well, then we just have the final letter of the year at the end of which December. he writes on my birthday. Seven yes. years before I was born. Yes, December 29. <laughs> Will this come out, David, before that? Yes. Yes, we're, we're, we're wrapping that this listeners. thing up before December. People Beautiful. can still send me birthday gifts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured that. People might be like, happy birthday, Andrew, like a little message or something. So if you guys want to- It sucks inundate... having a birthday four days after Christmas. Let me just tell oh, you. You don't like sharing the limelight with Jesus. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm a horribly, a horribly uh, uh, self-centered person. Kristen Andrew. has done a marvelous job at making that day special. Though. Can I can I give you some advice, Andrew? Offer it up and realize <laughs> that this time will end here soon. <laughs> when I'm a better man, maybe I, maybe I will. In fact, you're working I'll, with the I'll bad car right now, but don't worry, your car will improve. <laughs> I'll just do it after you've read Narnia and I don't know any three other of Lewis's <laughs> classic books. You know, so you fun. come back to me when you've read Grief Observed and Studies and Words. We'll talk. But you know what, listeners, pain is pain. So if you want to ease a little bit, offer Andrew some uh, words of congratulations. Through oh, jeez. You know, Lewis said um, one a dentist fun. anecdote. He said that um, when Lewis is at the dentist or coming back from the dentist and having great pain, uh, that his friends, especially uh, Humphrey Havard, delighted in quoting him bits from his book, The Problem of Pain. <laughs> you know, so, so that was kind of a boys club and teasing with a, a fair bit of teasing as well. Yeah, his friends were jerks too. Anyway, <laughs> the final letter of 1958, uh, Jack tells the story of his brother on a bus, hearing a woman exclaim when they were passing a church with a crib outside, Oh, law, they bring religion into everything. Look, they're dragging it even to Christmas now. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we are running kind of long, but that's okay. But do you guys have anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, this is my favorite letter so far. That's it. 
Yeah, I love these. And I know that we are running long, um, but we're we're flying through these letters at a, an almost breakneck speed. And so listeners, we will understand you, you know, making your listening choices the way that you can. But we do want to give, there's so much richness in these letters that we do want to give them some justice without letting them go. And, um, and I recommend them to your reading and rereading for, uh, for years to come. And speaking of the richness of the letters and speaking of uh, the time of year to give gifts, we are giving our patron supporters a really quite special gift this Christmas. Um, for everyone mm. that's in the top two tiers and for people who are in the third tier who've been with us for a good while, you're going to be getting a copy of a book that was previously out of print. It was called Letters from Jack, and this was produced by Azusa Pacific University. Needless to say, Dr. Diana Glyer was behind it, and it's the practical advice from the pen of C.S. Lewis. And we have got 200 copies of these printed, and uh, if you're in any of those tiers, you'll be getting that in the mail for free about the time this episode goes live. And if you haven't received a copy, so if you're in one of the tiers or you don't support us, uh, we will be selling them at cost. Uh, I'll put a link on the website. Excellent. I'm grateful for anything Diana Glyer does, and a lot of her, um, a lot of her great her, her classes have done really great work with some of those books. Mm -hmm. And the only other thing was to say that next episode we'll begin discussing the letters from 1959. But I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to our intern, Julia. Thanks to all of our listeners and patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners and all the prayer requests on the Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please order a friend a copy of Letters to an American Lady. It should still arrive just in time for Christmas. And please join us next time. When we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 <laughs>